You're listening to a sermon preached at Chao English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your great kindness to us in the gospel, and we thank you that in these last days that you have spoken to us through your Son. Our Father, we thank you that you have given to us your word and you've caused your word to be preserved for all these millennium uh, so that we might read it and know it and know you and know who you are and what you want from us. Father, if we don't hear your voice today, then we meet in vain. Father, we ask that in your kindness to us and in your commitment to your own glory, won't you speak to us through your word? Father, we pray that as we look at this portion of Matthew chapter 8, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what your Spirit wants to be telling us. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Friends, I wonder if you've seen those signs, those ads. You know, you walk around a shopping center and you see a big sign with a good ad. Uh, they're very large, these signs, they're attention-grabbing, and they're usually offering some epic deal designed to lure you in. But when you get closer and you have a closer look, you find in little tiny writing, some disclaimer is usually at the bottom of the ad that tells you generally the lesser attractive conditions of the offer. For example, uh, recently I was walking around a Westfield and I saw a sign for men's shirts. In big, bold text, it said 50% off. You know, I'm a bit of a mathematician, so I know that's half price. I'm like, this is pretty good. I'm a bit of a uh, businessman myself, and I realized that's a good deal. Half price shirts. So I thought, not bad. So I walked close to get a better look at the deal, and when I got there, I saw in tiny writing at the bottom of the sign, when you buy two or more items of equal or greater value. Suddenly, this uh, wonderful, epic deal, it didn't seem quite so appealing after all. Like a wise man once said, the big print giveth and the fine print taketh away. But friends, when it comes to Jesus, and when it comes to what Jesus has to offer us, there is no fine print. There is no fine print at the bottom. There are no hidden advertising tricks. There are no hidden terms and conditions of following Jesus. And as you and I will see today in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is very, very upfront with his terms and conditions. He's very upfront about all of this. He is absolutely clear that if you want to follow him, then it's going to cost you. There's going to be a personal cost to you, and it will be a huge cost. Today, friends, we're going to be looking together at the second half of Matthew chapter 8. If you remember, last week I told you we're going to be looking together at nine miracle stories of Jesus. Last Sunday, we looked at the first three. Today, we're going to be looking at miracle four and miracle five. Four and five, they're included in our text today. So I hope you have your Bible open in front of you. If you don't have one, again, you can grab one near the door. We'll be looking together from verse 18 to 34. Let me quickly remind you where we're up to in the gospel of Matthew. Jesus, at this point, he's finished his great Sermon on the Mount, he's come back down from the mountain, and he's been healing lots of different people, doing miracles. He's been casting out demons. And so now, 
naturally, word has gotten out. The word has spread. People have heard about this Jesus. Uh, I guess people are pushing this through their Snapchats and through their B-reels and their Insta stories. People are tweeting about it. So now everyone knows Jesus is in town. He's doing all these crazy things. So everyone is now flocking to see Jesus. People are coming in masses to see Jesus. But then, when Jesus sees the big crowds of people coming, he decides that it's time to bounce. He's going to leave. It's time for him to get in a boat and take off for a little bit. He's going to depart for a little bit. He gets into a boat to go to the other side of the Lake Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And so he gives orders to get the boat ready. And while that's happening, we read that a couple men come up to him to speak with him, and both of these men are very interested in coming with Jesus. They want to go with him. There's two guys. The first guy, we're told he's a teacher of the law, he's a Pharisee. He says to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. In other words, if you want to cross this lake, I want to come with you. Wherever you are, I want to be there. I want to follow you. In other words, he's going to do whatever it takes. He wants to follow Jesus. Pretty impressive, right? He wants to follow Jesus. And you almost expect Jesus at this point to smile at this man and, you know, pat him on the back and say, good on you, buddy. Good on your sport. Good choice. Good decision. Let's go. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't respond like that. Instead, Jesus turns to this man and he takes this opportunity to clearly spell out to him what it's going to mean if he really wants to follow Jesus. Jesus says to this man, he says, if you really want to follow me, there's something you need to know. You see, foxes, they've got their homes in the ground. Birds, they've got their homes in nests. But me, well, I don't have a nice, warm, comfy bed to lay my head on each night. In other words, if you really want to follow me, then you need to realize it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Because you see, we're going to be living out on the road. We're going to be going from town to town. And we don't know where we're going to stay. It's going to cost you the comfort and the security of your home. Are you really sure that you want to follow me? Well, it's at this point that the second man, the second would-be follower of Jesus, breaks in and says to Jesus, look, Jesus, me too. I really, really want to follow you too. I want to go where you go. But wait, there's just something I've got to do first. I've just got to do something first, and then when I'm done, I promise I'm going to follow you. Let me go and bury my dad. Let me go bury my father. Let me do that, and then after that, I'm all yours. I'm all yours. After that, you've got my full allegiance. Now, a quick side note here, the exact details of this second man and what he's actually asking for, we're not really that sure. There's no way of knowing. I mean, has this man's father just died? Is that it? Like, is there a corpse at home? And so, is this man, like, asking for a few days to plan the funeral, attend the funeral, right? Like, be a good son, and then after the funeral's over, he's going to follow Jesus? Is that it? Or is it that this guy's father is actually still alive, and this guy feels the need to just stay with his dad, like being a good son, maybe help out in the family business, something like that, until he dies, and then he buries him, and then he's going to come follow Jesus? Is that it? 
Well, I'm not really sure of the details here. There's no way of knowing. But either way, what is obvious is that this man feels a strong obligation to his family and a strong obligation to the expectations that his family have for him. This guy wants to be loyal to his family, which is a good thing, right? He wants to be loyal to his family. He wants to be a good son. And so it's really quite shocking when Jesus says to this man, no, no. If you really want to follow me, then you come now. Let the dead bury their own dead. Now, the issue here is not that Jesus thinks that family funerals are bad or that attending family funerals is wrong. No, the issue here is that there's a boat and it's about to pull away. That's the issue. The issue is Jesus is about to leave. That's the issue. So this guy, he has to make a decision now, right now. Is it allegiance to family or is it allegiance to Jesus? And here we see that Jesus demands that he have first allegiance over and above everything else, even family. So again, Jesus clearly spells out the huge personal cost that's going to come to those who follow him. Look with me at Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 to 22. Verse 18 to 22. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, that is himself, he has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. There's no fine print here, is there? There's no hidden terms and conditions here, huh? Jesus is crystal clear. He speaks with laser-sharp focus. You can't get this wrong. You can't misinterpret this. Jesus is perfectly clear. In big, bold letters, Jesus spells out to these two men that if they really want to follow him, it's going to cost them big time. It's going to cost them their comfort and security, and it will cost them family as first priority. And so I can't help but wonder, whatever happened to these two guys? Like, we don't read about what happened to them. I wonder what decision they made. They seemed very keen and eager to follow Jesus, right? But when push came to shove, were they actually willing to give up their comforts? Were they actually willing to give up competing loyalty that stopped them from following Jesus? Well, unfortunately, we don't get to find out. We're just not told, so we're left wondering. But I do hope that these two men were listening carefully to what Jesus said to them. Because if they did, then they would realize that following Jesus doesn't only involve a cost. Because if they did, then they would realize that there's actually something that Jesus offers in return that far outweighs the cost. Did you notice it? Did you see it there? It was alluded to when Jesus said, quote, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Have you ever read that before? Have you ever read that and thought to yourself, what a strange thing to say? It doesn't really make sense. What a weird thing to say. Like, how do dead people bury dead people? They're dead. Dead people don't do anything. 
And the answer is, it's because Jesus here isn't only talking about physically dead people, is he? No. He's talking about actually spiritually dead people too. Essentially, Jesus is saying, anyone who does not come and follow me is spiritually dead. So leave them to bury the physically dead. The spiritually dead will bury the physically dead, which of course implies that Jesus is also saying, follow me if you want to live. You want eternal life? Follow me, which as we all know in the context of Matthew so far, it means life in God's kingdom. That's what it means. Life with God's blessings now as he takes care of our needs, but ultimately, and more than that, eternal life, a place at the great heavenly feast, which we saw last week. And so yes, the cost of following Jesus is high. It's crazy high. But then Jesus claims that the profits, the returns, the return on investment, it's extraordinary. It's unbelievably good. Jesus claims that he can give his followers life, eternal life, forever life, life in God's kingdom at that great feast, which is all well and good if he can actually deliver on this, right? Like it sounds really nice if he can actually give this life that he claims to give. If not, then it will be absolutely stupid, right? It'd be silly to bear the cost of following Jesus if this isn't true. So then, can he? Can this Jesus actually deliver? Can he actually give this life that he talks about? Well, let's find out. Because now, the boat is ready to depart. And so Jesus gets in with his disciples, uh, those who have decided to say yes to following Jesus, these guys who have said yes to paying the price to follow Jesus, they get in the boat, and together they sail across the lake. After a while, Jesus gets sleepy, and true to his claim that he's got no warm, comfy bed of his own, he falls asleep right there on the boat. Jesus falls asleep on the boat. After a while, we read that a huge storm builds up on the lake, and the winds start to toss this little boat around. We read that the waves actually start pouring over the side of the boat so that it starts to fill up with water. These disciples, petrified. This is scary stuff. They're terrified. Now, friends, you've got to understand that at least three of these guys, maybe four, were professional fishermen. Think about that. Moreover, not only were at least three, maybe four, these guys were fishermen, but they were fishermen of this region. They knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand. These guys, these fishermen that are disciples now, they would have been out on this exact same lake hundreds of times, maybe thousands, hundreds of times before. Even before their working life, even as little boys, they would have followed their dad, right? Because their dads were probably fishermen as well. So these three disciples... Not only are they familiar with this sea, but they also know how to swim. Think about that. They're fishermen. They've spent more time in the water than outside the water. These are guys who know how to swim. They know this lake like the back of their hand. They know what rough weather looks like. So when we read that they were terrified, it tells us something about the sheer magnitude of the storm. When these three professional fishermen who fished this lake their whole lives when they're convinced that they're going to drown to death, we've got to realize as modern day readers, humanly speaking, they're right. They're right. 
No one is surviving this. Humanly speaking, these men on this boat, they're as good as dead. But that's humanly speaking. In their terror, the disciples go to Jesus, who's still sleeping, by the way, and they wake him and they cry out, Jesus, save us, we're gonna drown. They wake him up and they ask him to save them. Well, Jesus wakes up, he looks around at what's going on, and before he does anything else, he turns to his disciples and he rebukes them. Not because they've woken him up from his nap, that's what you think, but he rebukes them because they've failed to trust him. He says to them, you of little faith, such little trust, you know me, you've seen me, and you still don't believe. Why are you so afraid? And after he rebukes the disciples, we read that he turns and he rebukes the wind and the waves too. And immediately, without hesitation, the winds stop blowing, the waves die down. Everything on this lake, calm. Instantly it's calm. Goes from chaos to peace. Goes from danger to safe in an instant. What we see here, it's extraordinary. Like, I think sometimes our lack of imagination doesn't serve us. You just got to imagine yourself on that boat. You've gone from death to life. It's so extraordinary what's happened just here that these disciples, they're left wondering and asking this question, who is this guy? Who is this man? What kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Look with me at verse 23 to 27. Verse 23 to 27. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And I guess if the disciples had had the presence of mind at the time to recall Psalm 107, the first, our first reading from today, where God himself is seen calming the storm after terrified sailors cry out to him in prayer, maybe if these disciples had recalled that psalm, maybe then they would know the kind of man that Jesus is. The God-man. Fully God, fully man. Here is Yahweh of the Old Testament in the boat with them. Jesus, the God-man. I think that even asking the question, they're starting to understand, but they're not quite there yet, right? Can you see? Like in asking the question, they're starting to get it, but they're not quite, they haven't really quite arrived. But what's really interesting here is how humanly speaking, these disciples were as good as dead. They're as good as dead, but according to Jesus, they had no reason to fear death. All they needed to do was trust him. All they needed to do was rely on him. After all, it wasn't that long ago that Jesus told these disciples that if they followed him, he would make them fishers of men. Remember that? Chapter 4, verse 19. He's not going to let them die. They're not fishers of men yet. That's what Jesus promised. He's not going to let them die yet. They're not swimming with the fishes. Now, they only needed to trust in Jesus. 
Keep your eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. Trust him. Jesus has a mission for these disciples. And of course, he's going to preserve their lives until they achieve the mission. So, friends, you and I right here, we see that Jesus is actually able to preserve their lives. It's the kind of person who's actually able to deliver on huge promises. Well, after a while, the boat actually does pull up on the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, um, and they come to a Gentile region called the place of the Gadarenes. And as soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, he's met by another two men. There were two men before, there's two men again. He's met by another two men, but this time, these two men are in very, very bad shape. These two men that approach Jesus, they're demon-possessed. They have have demons inside of them. These two men have had their lives taken away, robbed by demons. These two men are as good as dead as well. And so it's appropriate, I think, that they even live among the tombs. They're they're the living dead, if you like. It makes so much sense. And they are scary. They are violent. They are apparently so violent that no one's able to pass by that place. They're really, really scary, these two two demon-possessed guys. But interestingly here, it's these scary demons possessing the men who are scared. Scared of Jesus. Scared of Jesus because they know the kind of man Jesus is. Because they know the true identity of this Jesus, the Son of God the one who on judgment day will cast these exact demons into hell. And so here are these once terrifying demons now pathetically and weakly begging Jesus, oh, if you drive us out, then please send us to the pigs. Please, if you drive us out, please send us on the pigs that are on that hillside. Interestingly, Jesus actually grants their request. He commands, Jesus commands that the two demons, they come out of the men, Jesus allows the demons to go into the herd of pigs, uh, pigs who weren't very happy with the situation, obviously, so they run down the hillside, they run into a lake, and they drown themselves. The pigs die. I'm sure you'd agree. It's not a very good day for the demons. It's not a very good day for the pigs. And if you're thinking economically, it's not a good day for the pig owners neither. But what a wonderful day for these two guys. Thought about that? What an awesome day for these two poor lads who were demon-possessed. These two guys who were as good as dead, but now they're not. Can you see what's happened here? Jesus has brought these two men from death to life. That's what's happened. The demons were gone. No more living among the tombs. Now these two men could really live. They could live their life to the full. Why? Because Jesus gave them back their lives. It's a wonderfully uplifting story. It's an awesome story. It's an amazingly uplifting story. Well, at least it should be. It would be, except for the way that it finishes. Because certain other men who were there that day looking after the pigs, they see all of this happen in front of them. They see all this, and unsurprisingly, they run back into town, and they tell everyone all about it. They tell everyone what's happened. They tell them about Jesus. They tell them about the demon-possessed guys. They tell them about the pigs that dead. You know, so in response, everyone in this town, the whole town, they come out to meet Jesus. And when they do, they beg him to go away. Go away. Leave us alone. Look with me at verse 28 to 34. 
verse 28 to 34. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came from the tombs to meet him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Ah, what a letdown, eh? What a disappointment, right? I don't know about you, but don't you read this and don't you just want to scream at these people? Like, are you stupid? Like, what are you doing? This is Jesus, the Lord of the universe is here. Can't you see who this is? Can't you see his great power? Can't you see his great kindness to people? Can't you see how loving he is, how powerful he is? Can't you see that he's given these two poor guys their lives back? Can't you see that he could give you life too? Life in God's kingdom? Can't you see that here is the answer for you never to be terrorized by demonic forces ever again? And what? You're going to send him away because he cost you some pigs? Can't you see that this Jesus can offer you way more than pigs, economy? What a disappointment, hey? But friends, I'm afraid it's on that note that today's passage ends. So, what have we learned from all this? What do we see here? What can, we, what can we learn? Well, a number of things. Firstly, we've learned that with Jesus, there is no fine print, right? It's very clear. Jesus is very clear. He says, if you want to follow me, there's a cost, a huge cost, huge sacrifice if you want to follow me. There's a very personal and a very high cost to following Jesus. It'll cost the expectation of comfort, of security, it's going to cost you the things of this world, and it'll cost you any loyalty that gets in the way of following him. That's what he says. Even family loyalty. But we've also learned that Jesus claims to offer life to all those who follow him. Spiritual life, eternal life, abundant life, life in God's everlasting kingdom. And more than that, thirdly, we've learned that Jesus is actually able to deliver on this claim, right? Can you see? He's said it and he's proven it. He's backed it up. We've seen it. He's saved the lives of the good as dead disciples in the lake. He's restored the lives of as good as dead demon-possessed guys on the other side of the lake. He's delivered. He proves who he is. So they're the things that we can learn from this passage. And so church, as we think about all this, obviously, it all now leaves us, each of us, with a very specific question, with a very certain question, a question that actually demands an answer. The question of whether or not you are willing to bear the cost of following Jesus. Because friends, the fact is, we too are called to follow Jesus. Now, of course, I know, 
Now, we can't do that in a literal sense, right? It's not like we're going to get into a physical boat with Jesus and go from like Rhodes to Meadowbank, right? We're not going to cross the Sea of Parramatta. Like, we're not going to literally follow him physically. We can't follow him in that sense anymore, right? But still, we are called to follow this Jesus. How is that possible? Well, at the end of Matthew's gospel, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he called on his first disciples to go out into the far corners of the world and to make disciples for him. Do you remember? What does he say? Matthew chapter 28, you know this. It's a memory verse. What does he say? He says, go out. That's what he says. Therefore, go. Go. Make disciples from all nations, from all over the world. Make followers of me from all over the world, baptizing them and teaching them, teaching them to follow me and to obey everything I have commanded. Zoom in on that second part of the Great Commission. It's a part that we often neglect. What does he say? Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's what Jesus says. So, what does it mean for us, for you and me, to be disciples of Jesus. What does it mean for you and me to follow him today? Well, it means obeying his teachings. That's at the most basic level, it means obeying Jesus' teachings as they are recorded for us in scripture by the disciples. You reading the Bible and obeying it is very important. It is by obeying what Jesus says to us through the scriptures It is by submitting each and every area of our lives under his written authority, that's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, by holding nothing back, by being fully devoted to him, 100% devoted to him and to his mission in the world, as shown to us in the Bible. So church, let me ask you the question again. Are you willing to follow Jesus. Moreover, are you willing to bear the cost of following Jesus? Because I don't doubt that all of us in this room right now have some kind of interest in Jesus. That much is clear, I think. I don't doubt that you have at least a small bit of interest in who he is, just like that crowd that flocked to Jesus, right? They were interested in who he was. But then we read that Jesus wasn't interested in people who were simply interested in him, was he? He wanted followers, not fans. He wanted followers that were going to pay the high personal cost to follow him. People who were actually willing to bear the cost of following Jesus. In other words, people who were ready to put devotion to Jesus before their love of comfort, before their love of security, before their love of material things, before all these good things, because my sister, my brother, there will be times when obedience to Jesus will require you to give those things up. Maybe not right now, but there will be times in your life when following Jesus will require you to give up some of these really important things in your life. So for example... When you as a Christian adopt a lesser standard of living in order to invest more money into the kingdom of God and for global mission. So for example, maybe choosing a smaller house or the older car or maybe not upgrading your iPhone every two years or your computer. It'll cost. There's a cost. 
Or when you give up some of your precious, precious free time in order to serve the gospel, in order to serve the church family. Or when you give up some of your precious, precious free time in order to reach out with the gospel to your unbelieving friends rather than just sitting at home playing computer games, rather than just hanging out. It'll cost. There's a personal cost involved. Or when you won't take a promotion at work because you know it'll make it harder for you to fulfill your role as a godly parent or as a godly spouse or as a godly church member. Or when you choose to stay at home altogether in order to raise the kids to follow Jesus, there's a cost. Or when you sacrifice some of your precious sleep or Netflix time or gaming time in order to make time for studying God's word, in order to make time for praying for the unreached people, in order to make time to pray for your friends that don't yet know Christ. It'll cost. And Jesus also wants people who are ready to put devotion to him before love of family as well. Jesus is not saying family is a bad thing. Jesus is simply saying, I am the ultimate thing. That's what Jesus is saying. Because for some of us, maybe not all of us, but for some of us, there will be times when obedience to Christ might require you to disappoint your family. Maybe even to face ridicule, mockery, shame, Rejection. This reminds me of one of my friends who had unbelieving parents. He was a Christian. His parents were not Christians, but they were very wealthy. They were extremely wealthy, very, very wealthy. And when their son became a Christian, and when their son saw the need for missionaries in unreached nations, his parents were aggressively against him. They told him, stop going to that church. But he kept going. When he said, mom, dad, I, I want to become a missionary, they told him, don't you go to Bible college, don't go. But he did. Eventually, it got so bad that his parents sat him down and they threatened him. They said, if you continue to go to this Bible college, if you continue to think about global missionary stuff, we're going to cut you out of the will. That meant millions and millions of dollars and a lot of property. They threatened him. They said, if you don't give this stupid thing up, this religious thing, then when your father and I die, we're going to cut you out of the will. When we die, you're going to get nothing. So my friend, he prayed about it. He searched the scriptures, and he saw everywhere in the Bible such a clear command for global mission. He just had to go. So he went. A few years later, both his parents died. And true to their word, he received nothing, not a cent. For some of us, there will be times when obedience to Christ might require you to disappoint your family. Or another example, when you won't date a non-Christian that your family might want you to partner up with. Or when you can't be at every single family gathering because of your commitment to God's family, the church. Or when you won't worship your ancestors along with the rest of your family. Or when you decide to give up the career that your parents sacrificed so much for in order to go serve God in full-time ministry. 
Or, perhaps more costly, listen to this, parents, when your child decides to give up the career that you sacrificed so much for because they want to serve God in full-time ministry, it will cost. So again, my brother, my sister, are you willing to bear the cost of following Jesus? You know, let me ask you right now, real talk, let me ask you right now, is there something that God is putting his finger on in your life right now? If there is something God in his spirit is illuminating in your life, don't resist him, don't ignore him, don't disobey him, act, repent, apply, obey, worship. Maybe right now God is highlighting an area of your life that's stopping you from giving your full devotion to the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe there's something in your life that's keeping you from wholeheartedly following after Jesus. I'll be honest, it, it, it's, it's really, really hard to let go of these things that we treasure so much, right? It can be extremely difficult. But then Jesus did not say, broad is the road that leads to life and many find it. That's not what he said. He said, narrow is the road and a few find it. And maybe now you and I are starting to understand why. So church, let me ask you again, are you willing to bear the cost? Or would you rather join in with the people from the Gadarenes with their pigs? And would you rather just, Jesus would go away. Leave me alone, Jesus. Stop costing me. Well, friend, before you answer that, don't forget that today, We've also been reminded of why bearing the cost is so, so worth it. Why it's so worth it, because we've seen Jesus offer us something immeasurably bigger, infinitely bigger and better than anything we might lose in following him, right? He offers us life, eternal life, in God's everlasting kingdom at the great feast. God offers us life with God's blessings now and eternal life in his kingdom, and we've seen more than that, his authority to actually make good on his promises. We've seen that he doesn't just say things, he backs it up. It's who he is. God doesn't lie. It's true. To stay behind is death. So you and I, we're in this passage. Are you going to get on the boat? Or is it let the dead bury the dead? Are you going to go bury the dead? To bear the cost and to follow Jesus means life. And you know, when we think of it like that, I think we start to see things with a lot more perspective, with a lot more clarity. We see in the grand scheme of eternity what's actually worth it. Most things that we're worrying about right now, it's not going to matter in a billion years' time, really. But Jesus will. I love how the 19th century theologian, J.C. Ryle, the great bishop, he puts it. He says this, J.C. Ryle, he says, I grant... It costs much to be a true Christian, but who in his sound senses can doubt that it is worth any cost to have the soul saved? When the ship is in danger of sinking, the crew think nothing of casting overboard the precious cargo. When a limb is mortified, a man will submit to any severe operation and even to amputation in order to save life. Surely a Christian should be willing to give up anything which stands between him and heaven. 
Church, what's standing in between you and heaven right now? Because today is the day to throw that thing overboard. What stands between you and the life that your Savior offers you? Because today is the day to cut that off and to throw it away. It's time to bear the cost of following our Savior Jesus. And as you do, remember that soon and very soon, we will be there. We will be in heaven with him and then we will see things as they truly are. Again, in the words of J.C. Ryle, he says, the presence and the company of Christ will make amends for all we suffer here below. When we see as we have been seen and look back on the journey of life, we shall wonder at our own faintness of heart. We shall marvel that we made so much of our cross and thought so little of our crown. We shall marvel that in counting the cost, we could ever doubt on which side the balance of profit lay. Let us take courage. We are not far from home. It may cost much to be a true Christian, but it pays. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for sending to us Jesus, your Son, and our Savior. Thank you so much that in him we have true life, life in your kingdom. Our Father, we are sorry for the times we've been unwilling to bear the cost of following Jesus. Please forgive us. Our Father, we pray that all of that would change from this day on, that we would be willing to put our devotion to Jesus before any comfort, before any material thing, that we would be willing to put our devotion to Jesus before any competing loyalties, even family. And as we do, Lord, please help us to see things clearly now. Help us to never doubt on which side the balance of profit lay. Father, we really look forward to heaven. We so look forward to your kingdom when the struggles will be no more and where we will have an eternity of reaping the rewards that come from following Jesus, our Savior. Hold us fast until we see you face to face. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.